if you've been coming to Grace Church Leith for the last uh, six months or so, then you, you might be familiar with Wade. Uh, Wade's uh, preached a couple of times here at, at Grace Church Leith, and uh, uh, when we were thinking about who could come and speak, I thought it would be great to, to hear more from him, and uh, I've been blessed by his friendship and his ministry over uh, the last uh, six months uh, since he arrived in the city, and uh, just before that as well, getting to know Wade over the last couple of years as he uh, planned to move here. So delighted to have Wade uh, come. Uh, so uh, Wade, if you want to come up and uh, I'm just going to hand over to you. I'll, I'll pray for you and then uh, uh, let you take it from there. Great. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness uh, to us and uh, just the many ways in which you have showered your uh, blessings upon us as a church uh, we thank you for dear friends uh, from Jacksonville who are here, uh, who want to be here to, to love and serve your people here. And what a privilege that is. And we thank you for Wade, and we thank you for uh, the ministry that uh, you've already um, blessed us with through him. And uh, we thank you for him today. We pray you would bless him as he opens your word, and uh, that you would speak to us as he uh, teaches from it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Athel. It's good to be with you guys again. It's good to see you. That fresh Leith air isn't quite the fresh Highland air that I was looking forward to this morning, but that's all right. It's great to be uh, together. And um, yeah, just it's a real encouragement. I, I want you to know this every time that I am able to visit here and be able to worship with you guys and just hear the way that you sing and, and uh, call out to the Lord and worship. Um, it's, it's part of what I hope we see today, part of how we encourage and support each other as the church, as the body of believers who've been brought together. Um, if I haven't met you, uh, you may not know who I am or, or where I'm from. So I just want to open as before we jump into what we're going to look at, tell you a little bit of my story, because it's a little bit of a joke between me and God that I'm up here as a pastor uh, and that I am this intimately connected and, and passionate about helping the local church because not quite 20 years ago, but almost when I was at university, I became a Christian and uh, I had a fairly desperately low view of the church at the time. Um, I had kind of grown up in the church, but for me, the church was this kind of outdated model of how people do Christianity that we just kind of needed to grow beyond. And uh, the reality is I just hadn't read my Bible very well. Um, but I was pretty convinced that, you know, well, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of go to church because that's the done thing. But that's not really the strategy of like how you, I don't know, live the Christian life or how you reach the world. Uh, and the Lord kind of allowed me to uh, think that way for a little while until um, eight days after my wife and I got married, we were uh, living in a new country. We moved to South America and uh, we were living there and I was teaching at a school and my wife was teaching at a school. And it just happened that where we were living in Bolivia, there was no local church. Like there just wasn't an option. And I'm from the American South where a bit like Scotland, there's at least a church building on most corners of most cities. And so you just always had an option. But now I'm faced with this time uh, with a new bride. I don't know what I'm doing. We don't know the language very well. I'm trying to learn how to teach. It's my first year teaching. It's my first year married. There's a lot of challenges. Uh, you might say a lot of red flags that I should have seen. Uh, yeah, in retrospect, probably. 
Um, but what happened over the course of that year is that my wife and I just became desperate, spiritually desperate for the church, uh, for just hearing a sermon, like in person and not just online, for doing what we just did, being able to sing and worship together, to receive the Lord's Supper, some of those basic things about who we understand the church to be that I had taken for granted. And so what happened is after that year, we moved back to the States, and for the first few times that we were at church, my wife and I just wept. We cried because it was so good for our hearts to be back worshiping in the body of the local church. And really from that moment, uh, I, I became passionate about wanting to see the local church flourish, especially in difficult environments, especially in places where it's hard to be a church together. It's hard to be a Christian in your context. And so that's kind of shaped uh, where we've gone since then and, and uh, what we've done. And the fact is that if you, know, you being here, spending your Saturday morning here, and maybe it's just to take advantage of the free childcare and fair play, um, but the fact that you're here on your Saturday morning probably means you have a deeper appreciation and understanding for what the local church is supposed to be, for what you're supposed to be together as a body than I did. But I think it is helpful in moments where we get away or we have a, a staycation or a stay retreat uh, to be able to go back and be refreshed and encouraged by some of the fundamentals of our faith. To be able to kind of sit, uh, pull the veil back a little bit, go to 30,000 feet and think like, who are we? And what are we actually supposed to be doing as Grace Church Leith, as we exist together, but then also as you exist in this world, as you exist in Leith? What is your call? What is your purpose? What is your identity? And so that's what we're going to look at in this passage from 1 Peter. It's all about the church. The church's identity, the church's foundation, the church's posture towards each other and towards the world. Who are you? What shapes you? How are you supposed to relate to one another? And then how do you live in this world as individuals, but also as a body or a temple, as we're going to see? So with that in mind, let's go ahead and, and read our passage. I think it's on the slides. Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to 1 Peter, um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 12. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. This is God's word for us. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a, corner, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. So I think the first thing that we should recognize is that this passage, Peter's writing, is stuffed to the brim. It's jam-packed with imagery and themes. He's fitting a lot in here. He's talking about spiritual houses, priesthoods, chosen people, cornerstones, stumbling blocks. There's direct references back to the prophet Hosea. There are quotes from Isaiah Isaiah, uh, and the Psalms. He's fitting a lot in here. it's, It's a bit like if you're familiar with, unfamiliar with some of what he's talking about, it's a bit like if you've ever been kind of the third wheel in a conversation between old friends, and they're like going back, and you're just standing there a little bit like an idiot, like, yeah, okay, I don't really know what's going on. What are, what are you guys talking about? There's a lot of inside things that, that are happening. And the reason why he's doing that is probably helpful to know Peter's audience. Who is he writing to? We didn't read this, but in the first verse, Peter says that he is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. In other words, he is writing to Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians of the dispersion who are scattered around uh, Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. So a collection of Christians that have Jewish backgrounds that are scattered around and are living in exile or in the dispersion. People with a deep knowledge of the Old Testament, of Old Testament Israel, its history, its themes, its imagery, but they're scattered. They're sojourners and exiles. So Peter's trying to give them a sense of grounding. Who are you? What does it mean now that you follow Jesus? What has happened to you? How does that influence how you live in the world in relationship to being surrounded out of your context, out of what's comfortable, but surrounded by people who don't believe what you believe? Those are some of the big themes of this letter as a whole, of what does it look like to be a Christian, holy living in a world that's opposed to you? But how do you not do that just as individuals, but together? So it's important for us to understand who we are. Where do you come from? So who is the church? Who is Peter saying the church is? Well, first and most simply, Peter says that the church is those who come to Jesus. He says in verse four, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So the people of God, and this is probably pretty fundamental for each of us. The people of God are those who come to Jesus by faith and repentance not rejecting him as the world rejects him, but of seeing him as God sees him, as chosen and precious, as the Messiah, the promised one. So the true church is those who come to Jesus by faith. But secondly, Peter says, as you do this, as you come to Jesus in this way, you become something different. 
something new. And this is crucial for, understand, for understanding how we live and how we operate as Christians together. Look again at verse 5. Peter says, as you, as you come to him, then you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. He says you're being built together as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And then later on in verse 9, he says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So do you see what is happening? Peter is saying that it's no longer just about who you are as an individual Christian, but who you are as you belong together as a group. As you're connected to the body. You're no longer thinking of yourself just in solo terms, but who you are is you exist together as a people, a nation, a priesthood, a spiritual house. A good parallel, I think, for how we can think about this as as individual Christians belonging together is the way that the Bible talks about marriage, uh, about people who get married. When you get married, in one sense, the Bible says that you kind of become a new person. That you, who you were as a, an individual, as a single, not covenantly bound to this person, who you were has gone away. And that you actually become wrapped up together in a covenantal union and you, you, the two halves as individuals come together and make a whole new person. This is why Genesis 2, God says that the two are going to become one flesh as they cling to each other, as they adhere to each other. And that's not just physical or sexual union, but that's emotional and spiritual. It's a whole person coming together with another person to make something new. So it's no longer just Wade, but Wade as he goes with and belongs with my spouse. Everything I do is oriented about how I am serving and laying down my life for my wife. That's what Ephesians 5 kind of draws out. It's no longer Allie, but Allie, as she goes with him, belongs with Wade. My individual identity gets enfolded now into our unified identity. And the Bible says something similar about people who come to faith, that you're no longer who you were. Most famously, 2 Corinthians 5, right? We probably all have this memorized. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. You're something different. The old is gone and the new has come. But it's no longer just who you are as a new individual creation, but who you are as you're now united, not just to Christ, but also to his body. A priesthood, a people, a nation, a temple. So the church, in other words, is this intense, interdependent community that belongs to each other. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? Well, the first thing I think it means is that the the church is not a place where you expect to be unchallenged or unchanged. It's a place where you're shaped and you're molded by the gospel, by the spirit applying the gospel as you live alongside one another. There's uh, a tendency, if we, if we think back to marriage, there's a tendency to think that, you know, it, broadly, culturally, people are looking for their soulmate, and if they find that person, then they're never going to have to change, right? Like, this person just gets me, I don't have to change, but the Bible says, no, you should be changing, because you are something new now, 
when you're brought together. And in the same way, when you become a Christian, you are changed and you are changing. So the church is a place where you do that together as you live life together alongside one another, where you are challenged and shaped by the gospel as it works itself out in relationship with each other. So if your expectation isn't that you're, is, is that you're not going to be, un, or is that you're going to be unchallenged or unchanged in the context of the local church, then you're missing the way that the Bible talks about it. The second thing uh, that I think this means for us is it's not a place to just come and consume or receive, but it's a place to pour out ourselves for one another. If your first instinct as you come to church on a Sunday or as you go to a new church, if you've moved, is to say, you know, I wonder what this church can do for me. I wonder what I can get from this. Then again, you're missing part of the biblical design for God's people. We are, Peter says, living stones being built up together. Think about the imagery that he would have in mind of stones being built together. If you think about some of the great cathedrals in Europe or even just some of the the small country kirks built out of stone, What did a master stonemason have to do to fit those stones together to make sure that they were stable and secure and that the building would last? He's got to cut them, shape them, take off jagged edges, making sure that these stones are going to fit perfectly together. So the church is a group of Christians being put together, laid alongside one another, being shaped and molded as a united whole, each one needing the other for the integrity of the whole structure. So it's not just about what you get and what you receive, but about how you love and how you care and how you give yourself for the person sitting next to you. Because just as you need them, they need you. They need your dignity, your value, the unique blessing of how God has made and equipped you to be pouring out yourself to each other. It's part of what keeps this spiritual house stable. Uh, I was uh, asked to to go about a month ago. I was down in um, Ayrshire. I was meeting with the church session. They had asked me to just come, and they were doing some strategic planning and thinking about some uh, some things they wanted to accomplish in the in the year ahead in 2024. So they asked if I would come and meet with them and and just sit with them and be a sounding board and and all that. So they had some big challenges. One of the big challenges was uh, their church building beautiful village church, um, but very old. And so you probably know better than I that that comes with lots of issues. Um, One of the problems, uh, which seemed a pretty pressing problem, was that uh, they began to notice that the wall behind the pulpit, when the wind got up, as it's likely to do here in Scotland, uh, you could see the wall moving a little bit. That's probably not safe. So they quickly got a building inspector out, and he uh, looked at the building, and he said, well, the mortar is a problem, but the real problem is that there's a few stones around the base of the wall that have just, they weren't fit, they're not fitting well together. And as a result, the whole structure was unstable. As the local church, are you so built into the lives of each other that if you stopped coming, if you stopped pouring yourself out for each other, the building would waver. If that, if you weren't there, someone would say, oh man, I, that, this hurts. We miss them. We need them back. Where are you? 
That's the design that Peter is saying of how God intends for us to belong to each other, to live life together in this interdependent community. Now, unfortunately, we know, if you've been around the church at all, that isn't often the reality. What we do on Sundays as we come together, or days like today, and we worship, and and we sing, and we hear from God's word, what we do is we do life alongside each other is meant to be a taste of heaven, of where we're going. It's meant to be a a little uh, capture of what God is, is doing as he prepares the bride of the church for himself. However, our lived reality right now for us with church is that it's affected, of course, by brokenness and sin because it's made up of sinners, because we're not there yet. And so as you open yourself in this way, as you, as you do that, if you are doing this, then as, as you open up your heart and your life to others and they to you, you begin to see vulnerabilities and weaknesses. You begin to see those messy places, disappointing places. It's a risk to open yourself up this way. And I think it can be very easy in that place as you begin to do church this way, as you begin to live alongside one another in this way. It can be very easy to, to throw cheap darts at one another. You know, uh, I wouldn't have said it that way. He doesn't, really, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Or we're just not doing this ministry in the way that I think we should be doing it. Or if he or she would just do this, then that would solve all of these problems. It can be very easy to, to, to switch into judgmental mode as you begin to see the vulnerabilities and weaknesses of those people that you're doing life intensely alongside. But what I want us to do now is I want to reflect on a couple of the principles of the church that Peter gives us. And as we do this... Uh, I want you to do your best to put your own heart under the microscope. Put your own heart under the gospel, under the the word here. Try not to fall into the trap of, oh man, if only he or she were here to hear this one. Or, man, I really hope that they're listening. Examine your own heart. Where do I need to repent and believe this? So, first principle that Peter gives us is that it is God who is crafting and building this place and not you. God is the one who is building up this church. Again, back to verse five, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice he doesn't say you yourselves are building the spiritual house, but rather that you are being built up. So God is the one who's building this house but at the same time, we have responsibility in it. There, I don't want to Greek out or geek out. Oh, that was, I am going to go to the Greek, and that was a terrible unintended pun. I don't want to geek out too much as I Greek out. Um, but the verb there is uh, what, what's called as a middle indicative. And in English, we have kind of active or passive tones, right? Either you're doing the action or the, the action is being done to you. And there are various ways that that can look. But Greek has this kind of middle form uh, where it's something that you're participating in, but it's also something that's happening to you. And that's what Peter uses here. 
as you are being built up. So it is something that you are participating in, and yet it's God who's doing this work. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. No church is perfect, and you're never going to find a church that doesn't disappoint you at some level. That's just the reality because people are sinful and messy. And of course, there are some more acceptable forms of a church disappointing you than others. You know, if the doctrine's off or the worship's off, or if you see no fruit of the spirit happening, yeah, then then those might be some bigger issues that you need to work through. But the basic disappointments, if your response to them is to be bitter and divisive, then that's usually a good indicator that you're looking for a church that you can build and design rather than resting in the reality that God is the one who's building this church. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew a lot about disappointment of the church. If you're familiar with him, he was a a German minister uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and he was killed during World War II. But he saw his church capitulate to the Nazis on a number of occasions. So he had every reason to be disenchanted, frustrated with the local church, and he often was. But he also wrote this in the book Life Together, which is a classic if you haven't read that. It gets at a lot of this, uh, what we're talking about. He said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law, and they judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. We must confess. He builds. We must proclaim. He builds. We must pray to him, and he will build. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. It's a great check on my heart and on our heart when you face some of the disappointments of living life alongside one another in this way. Okay, so that's principle one. Christ is building the church. Principle two Christ is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the church. And this is pretty obvious from the text. Peter hits on this point a number of times in verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. He's talking about who God, at, who God is, who Christ is, as the cornerstone, as the foundation of the church. And a cornerstone, you might be aware, but it is the foundational piece of the building. It was the first stone laid in the construction of a building at the corner of where the first two walls are going to go up. It is the foundation stone at the base of those walls. And because it is that first stone, it is going to set the reference or set the alignment for all of the other stones that then get laid next to it as the walls go up. The cornerstone has to be sure. It has to be um, secure and it has to be level because as it goes, the building goes. If the cornerstone is off level, then the the blocks that are going to be built, the stones next to it are going to be off level. So the cornerstone has to be secure And Peter's saying to Jesus, the reality is that Jesus is the cornerstone. And that should be, I think, both a comfort and a challenge for us. 
It's a comfort because if, if Christ is this for us, if Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation, the setting stone for the church, then we know that ultimately nothing can affect the stability of this new spiritual house. Nothing can affect the foundation, the stability, and the outcome of the church. Because Jesus is the foundation and the cornerstone of the church, he said the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. He sits secure and enthroned and interceding for you in glory, and he's going to come again to rule and reign forever and ever, and nothing can touch that. Not your successes and not your failures. He has won. So we can rest and rejoice in the fact that Peter says he is this foundation for us. That whoever believes in him, he says in verse 6, will not be put to shame. But the honor is for you who believe. That is a great comfort. And we're going to dig more into that in the second uh, half of our time. But I think this is also a challenge for us. Because if the cornerstone is the reference, if it sets the direction and the alignment for all the other stones then we need to be checking ourselves and making sure that we are aligned with Christ, both personally and as a group. Are you aligned with Christ personally? Is Christ the foundation that sets the trajectory of your life? Or is something else sitting as the foundation of your hope, your desires? Is it your spouse or your children or your political agenda or your financial success? What thing, if it became unstable, would threaten to undo the whole fabric of your life that the walls would come down if that was touched? See, everyone is building their life on some kind of foundational stone. Some cornerstone sits at the root of the building that you are building. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idle factories. That is that they are constantly producing something that is challenging the authority of God in our hearts. There's constantly producing something that wants to sit on the throne of your heart where only God can sit. And Peter is very clear that Jesus as the cornerstone is not good news for everyone, but that he becomes a rock of offense or a stone of stumbling But every other cornerstone, every other thing, every other place that we look to fulfill our ultimate hopes and dreams are going to crumble and they're going to fail you because they're not designed to bear the weight of those. All those other things that you pour your hope and affections of your heart into, they're not ultimately going to satisfy what you're looking for. Jesus alone can act as the cornerstone. So going back and checking our alignment, is Christ the place that I'm looking for my security, my comfort, my assurance, or is it something else? So there's that personal call for us to individually make sure that we're aligned to to the cornerstone, but there's also a corporate response to this. Because we're being built together as a spiritual house, Christ acts as the cornerstone of that house, of us together. So what, uh, what does that mean for how we are to be his temple, his priesthood, his nation in this world? And I'm going to stop there because we've been going long enough, and I think we're going to sing another couple songs, and we're going to dig more into that. Now, how do we then live as this spiritual house in the world? What direction does he point us to? 
for how we're to respond to him as the foundation and the cornerstone. So we're going to dig into that a bit more uh, in, in a few minutes. But I think we're going to sing a couple more songs. Um, so while they come up, let me, let me just pray uh, for us as we uh, put our hearts, as I said, under the microscope of God's word. Lord, this is, um, uh, like I said, a great comfort that you are the foundation of the church, that not our success nor our failures can ultimately touch what you have done for us and where you are now and what you're promising to do, that you say in your word, you don't leave yourself without a witness. Um, but Lord, we also know that you are, are calling uh, your bride to continue to be made ready for that wedding day, to continue to be sanctified and purified. So Lord, as we live together as a body of interdependent Christians in the local church, would you help us also to be dependent individually and together on you, on what you are doing, on what you say, and how you um, bring the gospel of grace into our lives and into our community. Uh, We thank you uh, for what you have done and what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen.